0: What up and welcome in to the Sun Saturday Irish Podcast. I'm Tyler Rojek here with Luke Smith. And today we're going to put a bow on another undefeated regular season for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. This is the program's third undefeated season in the past nine years. An incredible accomplishment that we don't want to get lost in the anticipation of the postseason run this team is about to take on. So with that in mind, this episode is going to primarily focus on the final home game against Syracuse. Uh, And then we talked to Patrick Engel. The Notre Dame football beat writer for Blue and Gold illustrated to hear his thoughts on the regular season as a whole uh, because it was one that I'm sure none of us are ever going to forget. Obviously, we'll discuss the Clemson rematch a little bit. We can't help it. Um, but we'll save our full preview of the ACC championship for next Tuesday. Luke, I'm not even sure where to start because the fact that Notre Dame was even able to play a season um, is an accomplishment in and of itself. And now here we are in early December with the regular season in the rear view, and Notre Dame is undefeated. It
1: is pretty remarkable that we got this season off. I'm not going to say without a hitch, because people forget that there was even like a week within the season where we thought it might be done after the South Florida outbreak. But to Notre Dame's credit, they got it under control, and here we are sitting at 10-0 and 0 going into the ACC championship in Charlotte. But you're right, um, it was a 10-0 and 0 season built on a really solid team performance. However, there were some uh, individual performances that that really catapulted us to kind of where we are today, and that was recognized. Um, a, a variety of awards came out with their semifinal lists today, so I, I'd like to get into that a little bit. First off, we have franchise Williams named to the Doak Walker semifinalist list for best running back in the country. Only freshman or redshirt freshman on the list out of ten backs. Very impressive. Glad to see him get that national recognition. Meanwhile, um, up for the Bedarnik list, we have Jeremiah Hawusu Koromoa and Kyle Hamilton. You know, we've talked about how this defense only really has two studs, so it's impressive how well they play together. But um,
0: How about Hamilton not getting a uh, Jim Thorpe Award semifinalist? Kind of ridiculous. Wow, he got the Benarik, but not the Thorpe.
1: Yeah, I didn't even realize that. Okay, maybe I'm maybe I'm pissed after all. But anyways, uh, um, (laughs) like I was saying, you know, when the two studs in your defense are are two of the best eighteen defensive players in the country, that helps. But um, that wasn't where it stopped. We also have our boy Liam Eichenberg on the semifinal list for the Outland Trophy, which is the best interior lineman. There's only six guys on that list, so that's a that's a pretty Hefty accomplishment, in my opinion, and well-deserved. guy's had a hell of a career, just gotten better every year and, and really been the most dominant lineman on Notre Dame's team this year. And then finally, we have our, our guy, Ian Buck, named to both the Davy O'Brien list and the Maxwell Award semifinal I mean, what more can we say about the guy? We've pretty much said it. Really good to see him finally getting some national recognition, even if it did take beating the number one team in the country in double overtime for people to realize he existed. But, you know, um, they're the number two team in the country for a reason. And it's guys like these that that have made this season really possible and and really fulfilling for us as fans. Yeah, when did they announce
0: um, the coaching semifinals, like the Broyles award for the best assistant coach and, and head coach of the year. Cause I got to imagine Kelly and, and presumably Clark Lee will be up for both of those as well.
1: Yeah. I haven't seen those yet. Um, it was actually kind of funny thinking back how last year Clark Lee wasn't on that list, which didn't make any sense. Um, I believe you can only have one coordinator on that list. So like, listen, both Rees and Lee, I think could easily be on that list. I Guess she gave the edge to Lee just because of how good that defense has been. But seems kind of unfair to Tommy that he's probably not going to end up on that list because they both could be on that very well. Oh, without a doubt. Look at that,
0: Kyron Williams, Stoke Walker. True, like a true question. If you asked the vast majority of national college football people who study this sport religiously, you know it's their entire livelihood. Who is Kyron Williams? I feel like a lot of people would have admitted, like, uh,
1: I don't know. <laughs> And here he is, Doak Walker, a semifinalist. It's just like that alone is incredible. It really is. Um, I mean, I go back to the first episode we ever released, and Mike Golic Jr. said that Kyron Williams was a guy he'd been hearing a lot of things of coming out of camp. And, And some other beat writers had said that as well, like Pete Sampson. But, I mean, I think even us were like, okay, well, If they're hearing good things, that means he's probably serviceable. Not one of the best 10 running backs in the country. Um, But hey, here we are. And uh, I'm thankful for that.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, Kyron is going to get the recognition for Doak Walker, but our running game isn't just him. And I think that's what makes this team so good. We'll get into this a little bit later with Patrick Engel, but just the depth throughout the roster, you know, one through 85. After the Cotton Bowl, Kelly said, um, that's where Notre Dame needed to prove upon the most, that they were, you know, pretty top heavy and then going on down, you know, you start to see a big drop off there, but really not so much with this team. And, you know, when you're the number two team in the country, your guys are gonna get recognized. Um, I don't think Notre Dame had this many guys up for awards back in two thousand eighteen. The last time I really remember this happening was when there's a bunch of them was back in 2012. And obviously Manti Teo was getting a ton of that recognition, but now this time there's multiple guys all up for different awards. And I really can't remember the last time this happened.
1: You know, honestly, I don't even really remember it that well in 2012. Obviously I think Brian Kelly won coach of the year. Manti won like seven awards, and I think Tyler Eifert might have won the Mackey or something like that or yep. was up for it. But in 2018, it was really just Julian Love up for a couple awards. Um, somehow didn't win the Thorpe Award, which he should have, but go figure. But you're right, and it speaks to, I think, and, and we get into this with Engel, just how much depth this team has and, and why it's a different story than it was in 18 and in 12.
0: Yeah, And now before we get to that, I think, you know, we should talk a little bit about the Syracuse game because although this is an unforgettable season, I think the Syracuse game will probably be forgettable with the exception of Ian Book uh, becoming the winningest quarterback in Notre Dame history in his final home game, which is awfully poetic, um, but really cool. Not only is he getting the national recognition, but now he's going to go down as one of the greatest quarterbacks in Notre Dame history to see that I wish, you know fans were able to be in the crowd, especially when he got that send-off there at the end because I remember being at that 2012 Wake Forest game, which was the last home game of the year, and all the seniors. That was delays for Van thing and Capron lewis moore and teo they call timeout. they got a standing o i think the entire senior class like just literally ran the lap around the stadium and no one was leaving anytime soon it was really cool so it's unfortunate that book didn't get that and the other seniors didn't get that as well but still um really cool that they got to go out with a win and Norem finished their third season in a row undefeated at home
1: yeah um they did and it's pretty remarkable when you consider where we were four years ago. But um here we are in, in prime for, you know, a, a postseason run here. But yeah, let's talk about Syracuse a little bit. Um, should we get into uh respective viewing experiences?
0: Yeah, this one was actually calm for me, watch it by myself in this little room at work. And normally, you know, we've we've established this before. I'm the nervous Nelly. I was never nervous about this at all. Um, even at the beginning, I, I would say was more annoyed, like, okay, like, let's just get this over with. So I don't have to focus entirely on this game anymore. Um, cause I actually had things to do and it wasn't anything special for me, but what about you?
1: You're right. It, it kind of was an arguably forgettable game and, and one that I don't think we're going to think about too much other than book being the all-time winningest QB in Notre Dame history. However, something I'm not going to forget is the radio broadcast because I actually started listening to this game when I was in the car driving, which I haven't done in I don't know how long. But all i got to say is poor Rex Culpepper, Ryan Harris and Paul Burmeister on the Notre Dame call. We're not holding back at all. Here here are some excerpts of what they said. He is wildly inaccurate. Um, Another one. It's rare you see a college starting quarterback completing less than 50% of his passes on the season, but that's just where we're at with Culpepper. <laughs> and my favorite, that's the third time he's thrown a pass where I legitimately have no idea who he was throwing it to. Uh, I mean it's brutal. A, a summation of Syracuse as a whole, but you know, maybe I need to listen to the radio more often because Harris and Burmeister really uh, really pretty much off the cuff there. It was great.
0: So is radio just like the new baseball broadcast where the announcers are clear homers? They don't even try to be nice or friendly or hide who they're rooting for.
1: Yeah, I mean it's not it's not a national broadcast, you know. So it, well, I don't think it's a national broadcast. At least it's Notre Dame. Club.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever listened to a Notre Dame game on the radio, so this is news to me. Yeah, Maybe it's the we'll switch.
1: It's, it's not bad, especially for guys like us with faces for radio. So <laughs> that's that's why we're doing a podcast and not a YouTube. Yeah. Exactly. Um, You know, I watched the rest of the first half and and most of the third quarter at my apartment alone, which is the only time I've ever done that this year. Honestly, probably something I should do more often because, you know, I freak out. But um, it wasn't really necessary to game like this. I do have one gripe. migrated to Old Crow Smokehouse in Wrigleyville for the rest of the game. And uh, I now have a vendetta against that bar because they turned off the game with six minutes left to put on Iowa-Illinois. I don't know who in God's name cares about those two awful Big Ten teams playing when you, know, you have Ian Book about to take his last snap in Notre Dame Stadium. So I missed that on the broadcast, which I was not happy about. But, um, yeah, that, that was not great. <laughs> you know who probably cares about that uh, an Illinois
0: game? In the biggest city in Illinois, probably alums that I'm sure
1: populate a lot of Wrigleyville. Have you ever met an Illinois football fan? Because I haven't, and I lived in Illinois my whole life. Uh, I have not. No. <laughs> okay, exactly. <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't. No, they're basketball fans. They don't believe in football. I've, I've, since Rashard Mendenhall and Juice Williams, they've never had anything to cheer about. So, I thought I
0: thought there's a decent Iowa presence. In Chicago. I thought that was like a popular school because they just rage all the time. and Like they're just out in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing to do but party in a cornfield. This is
1: rich to me, or sorry, coming from me, but it's very cultish. Iowa, I never understood it. I visited there twice. They do have a like cool downtown bar area, but like people that go to Iowa are obsessed with it, and I just don't really know why. There's not that much to be obsessed about, but uh, go figure. Go Hawkeyes. Yeah. (laughs) All right. What did you like? in this Syracuse game? So, off the top, the defense forced three turnovers. And, you know, we talked about this. For as dominant as they've been, they, they don't create a lot of turnovers. And Clark Lee has mentioned it as something that needs to happen. And, well, on Saturday, it certainly happened. You know, they recovered two fumbles, even though I'm not so sure about one of them. Thankfully, that was the call. The Myron off. one? Yes. When he ripped the ball out? Yes. Yes. I was surprised. I mean, it it all came down to call on the field. It kind of opened the floodgates, to be honest. Um, So that was a big play. And, you know, Dalen Hayes got a pick like I hoped he would. Didn't quite take it back, uh, but good to see him get get an interception. um, Well-deserved. And it was a nice play out in the flat, actually. So that was great. Following up on that, kind of that theme of senior day, Javon McKinley got in the end zone 3 times to make up for somehow not having any touchdowns going into the game. Like for the guy who is our leading receiver, it it kind of blew my mind that he didn't have a touchdown, honestly. Yeah, I was shocked. He, yeah. Yeah, but he got 3 and he honestly like made plays on all 3 balls. So, he is legitimately good as I've said several times and I have to I can't take the credit for that. I think my friend Andrew Fay first said that as he reminded me last week. So that's his line. But he's better than legitimately good now is what I'm saying. Like, he's a legitimate threat. And honestly, to me, is, is probably the biggest surprise on the offense outside of Kyron Williams. Yeah, without a doubt. And in the
0: confidence that Book has in him too, especially on that last touchdown before the half, they were in man coverage if Book checked to a fade to him, like, oh, this is automatic. I mean, granted, it's Syracuse, but still, the confidence he has, like, all right, I'm throwing this up. He's going to make a play, which he did. Early in the season, uh, that wasn't the case at all. In the times that they did kind of throw the jump ball, he didn't always convert.
1: Now, you know, if he throws it deep to him, you like his chances to bring it down. Mm Mm-hmm, absolutely. And and finally, the third thing um, was Chris Tyree showing that stars matter. Um, As Ari Wasserman of The Athletic often likes to write and say – And Chris Tyree had five of them coming out of high school. Five. Count them. Jack Walsh, Pat Falkenberg. That's five stars. Uh, 94-yard crib call was electric. And I'm really, really excited to see what he and Kyron and, honestly, Sibo, do the next several years because it it really does feel like the sky is the limit for that running back room. Isn't it kind of weird
0: this year how, like, a lot of five stars that come on to Notre Dame you know, There's a ton of hype, and rarely do they live up to it, at least on the offense side, like right away. Now we're dealing with that a little bit with Jordan Johnson, where people are begging him to see more playing time. Maybe not so much now that the receivers have really come on of late, but Tyree and Michael Mayer, both having, Mayer having a more impactful season, but Tyree really showing flashes of how good he can be. It's really
1: encouraging to see and not something we've seen very often, um, at least under Brian Kelly. No, you're right, and something I have noticed – You know, there were a lot of murmurs kind of earlier in the year about Jordan Johnson and where he was at with traits and all that stuff. But, like, if you watch the recap video from the Clemson game, you watch him on the sideline, he's as engaged as anyone. Like, he is the biggest cheerleader on that sideline, which is really promising to see. Obviously, we'd love to see him out there. He's a really talented guy, but it – does seem like he's got everything else his ducks are in a row so that's been great to see and and obviously the production with with Mayer and tyree has just been phenomenal and you
0: got to imagine he's going to have a chance next year Mm -hmm. like right away mckinley's gone skaronic's gone he's going to have a chance to play oh yeah we'll see him all right how about you uh first thing ian book i mean like you said before what hasn't been said about him but we have to recognize him now because in a couple times you just have mentioned him until the end because (laughs) we've already talked about him so much but this time Like I said, becoming the winningest quarterback in Notre Dame history in his last home game. Poetic. And he got to pad the stats a little bit, which is something we were hoping for mentioned in the preview. Um, We'd love to see him get some touchdowns through the air. He finished 24-37, 285 yards, three passing TDs. He ran eight times, although a couple of those were sacks, for 53 yards. And he ran for two TDs on the ground. So, accounted for five touchdowns. And... Like watching him, I felt a different. It's it's different for me because when was the last time, and you can help me out here with this, where Notre Dame had a quarterback that you had so much confidence was going to win the game no matter what. Like Notre Dame has had decent quarterbacks in recent years, like Deshaun Kaiser was talented, but he wasn't the reason
1: they were winning games. Maybe does it go back to Clausen? Yeah, and here's the thing with Clausen is that They weren't winning? He didn't win that many games. <laughs> and it it wasn't his fault necessarily. So that's the only thing I have against it there. But maybe Brady Quinn. I mean, really, like that's that's probably it. Um now, Ian Book's the only guy that's beaten a number one team, or I mean, besides Brady Quinn with one top five win against a Michigan team that ended up being pretty lousy, like he's the only quarterback in our lifetime to to like beat a top-five team. So, uh, I mean, basically, to answer your question, we haven't really had that. Yeah, Quinn's chance to, like, all right, the game's on him
0: now. Go get that win. Save our chances at a BCS Bowl. Came against an unranked UCLA team. <laughs> like, in the latter part of the season, we needed him to drive them down the field in three plays and score. Although, I was at that game. That's one of the greatest moments of my childhood, I think. But <laughs> it's a little sad looking back. But just the confidence that, I mean, we have as fans, and the team has in him and always had in him really that he's just going to win the game. And now he's doing it through the air and on the ground. So just awesome to see in something that's really encouraging going into the postseason. Second thing, Clarence Lewis, CPA. I'm going to keep giving him love since I trashed his name at the beginning of the year, but he got ACC defensive back of the week. Um, A big accomplishment for the true freshman. And Notre Dame was giving Syracuse short throws all game, um, especially on the field side to challenge Rex Culpepper, which is kind of why I'm a little bit surprised that the radio guys dogged him so much because, yes, there was a couple throws where you like, what the hell was that? But honestly, <laughs> he was hitting more throws, especially to the side, than, than Notre Dame probably anticipated. And I say that because um, Syracuse targeted Lewis 12 times. He gave up 10 catches. So you're thinking like, oh, are they trying to pick on him? But those 10 catches only gained 74 yards, and 28 of those 74 yards came after the catch. Lewis finished with 12 tackles, one pass breakup. So you think that over 10 catches, that's really not that much. Like, especially if they're playing back and you're giving it to them. And credit to a true freshman for making 12 tackles, especially at cornerback, where, you know, typically corners aren't great tacklers.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. And listen, I mean, the guy's probably going to be a freshman All American, which. Wild. I guess maybe we just got to find some guy with a brutal name next year. Um, uh, Sorry. No, it's not a brutal name. We got to find somebody like that we. Just give a little ribbing to because clearly they're listening, right? So, yeah, Clarence Lewis heard me call him CPA and had to, had to ball out. Not that there's anything wrong with being a CPA, I would fail that test. So,
0: it's true. Um, the last thing I have got to give a shout out to the WAPU Nation. Um, some guys from WAPU getting snaps. Let's start with JD Carney, quarterback, he got a play, and then Cameron I'm gonna butcher this last name, Ikanayaki. I don't want to just ruin his last name, he got three carries. That's cool. Xavier Lazinski, tight end. He got in for a play. And then Jack Kennedy, Fenwick product. He got two snaps there at tight end. You know, we, when we talked to Sam and Logan, they were just so proud to talk about the time that they got on the field and you just could hear how much that meant to them just from the sound of their voice. And, you know, for these guys and all the guys on WAPU and the scout team who just bust their ass day in and day out, it's great to see them um, actually get on the field and get some real
1: reps in Notre Dame Stadium. Absolutely. Uh, not a harder working group of, of people in that locker room. So good to see them reap the the benefits of their uh, of their hard work. All right. There was a few things that you and I didn't like, probably more
0: than we anticipated uh, in a game against Syracuse. So what sticks out to you?
1: Yeah. You know, there were two drops on Notre Dame's first drive that stalled it and maybe gave Syracuse a little bit of confidence um, from McKinley and Joe Wilkins that probably would have been touchdowns. Um, So, you know, the bigger thing there is that they took away another little bit of stat padding from Ian. Like we got to have those balls, man. That's all I'm saying. Um, Further, you know, listen, I, I understand it. I'm not an epidemiologist and there's a pandemic going on, but seniors not getting their moment on the field with families is just kind of sucks. Like, I get it. I'm not saying it's not the right move, but like those guys and their families that have put in so much to that. I wish they could have found a way to recognize them with their families on the field, because you mentioned the 2012 game earlier and like seeing Manti Teow run out there with the lays with his dad and mom is just like one of those moments that, you know, is awesome to watch over and over again. And we've seen so many of those over the years and, and to see guys like, you know, Book and, and Eichenberg kind of stripped of that. Just stinks a little bit. I I think of Drew Tranquil when he almost like decked his whole
0: family. He ran out there like full speed. I was like, all right, dude, chill out. But, yeah, I'm with you. That
1: was That's a big bummer. Yeah, and the third thing, I'm kind of kidding, not really. Kyle Hamilton looked a little bit human. Um, took a bad angle on a touchdown route. Almost looked a little bit passive. You wonder a little bit what that targeting call does to you mentally like does it slow down the speed of the game and not in a good way for you at all because there were a couple plays in that game where I was just like he doesn't really quite look like himself like not playing with the same um I don't know speed that he normally does so I would say
0: carefree just like yeah he didn't play with the same sort of like carefree aggressive mentality when he normally flies around the field. He's still great obviously. We're not
1: we're not saying he's not unbelievable. I mean actually, he's one of the 18 best players in the country on defense apparently. So Yeah,
0: that one play, it's just there were some very uncharacteristic plays from the Dame defense and I guess that's where I'll start for me. Uh Syracuse running all over us uh just one week after They ran 25 times for three yards against NC State. is not an encouraging development, especially when Notre Dame is about to play one of the best running backs in the country for a second time in Travis Etienne in just a couple weeks. Syracuse finished with 229 rushing yards, and they had two guys go for over 100. Now, granted, Cooper Lutz had 80 of those on one carry against some second- and third-team guys, so I don't want to make too much of it. Tariq Bracey literally just fell. Uh, yeah. And then he was gone. So I'm not going to make too much of it, but it was a little bit weird just seeing the blown assignments and things like that. Just very uncharacteristic sometimes. And the second thing, sort of on the note that you're saying earlier, just players not being able to go on the field with their families. I would say no students being there to share the senior day moment with the players, because senior day, although it is all about the players, um, it's a great moment for the students as well especially the seniors, because they get to go on the field after the game. They get to hang out with their friends on the team and um, just kind of soak in that last moment in their last game at Notre Dame Stadium. Although they got it. <laughs> they did get to run on the field after Notre Dame beat Clemson, so I guess that's a give and take. Personally, I'd rather be able to run on the field after beating the number one team in the country than yeah. having to sit through that absolutely miserable Navy game in 2017
1: um yeah,
0: we don't I don't want to rehash it anymore than we did in the last one. Yeah, and honestly
1: like why did we ever even talk about the Navy 2017 game cuz I can't really tell you like anything that happened
0: cuz it's my senior day. It's important. It's it's <laughs> it's memorable even though that ha- that was just That was absolutely miserable. The game was gross. The weather was atrocious. Um, I think the tailgate was still fun because we forced ourselves to have fun. At one point, it was just gushing rain and people were just like mobbing and throwing beers everywhere, cold beers. So now we're getting even colder. And at a certain point, you're just like, all right, like, I'm going to have to get
1: drunk enough for this to be like tolerable. (laughs) That was
0: pretty much the whole game.
1: Yeah, that happens in South Bend a lot. But you're right. It definitely does kind of stink. Although, like, you know, I saw some of my friends still in school senior year. They went back for the game, couldn't go in. Um, and they actually were watching it between the buns, drinking Smurfs, which to me sounds worse than getting COVID itself. To be <laughs> honest, like I think I'd have a full <laughs> body Giant reaction. Yeah. You just get a full body allergic reaction from one of those things. Who knows what's in that outside of like grain alcohol. Yeah. Cause they just had it in that cooler. Right. And they just, they'd fill up that XL cup. One time I somehow ended up in there at like 10 30 in the morning on like a Thursday, like, cause I, you have problems. <laughs> no, it was just like, I don't know, something to do. And like, I watched how they made it and it was literally like watching jungle juice made in a dorm party. Like they had it in a cooler and all, and they just dumped stuff in there. Like, you don't want to have that? I've seen people have bad allergic reactions to it. Like I, I love the place. It's great. But, uh, like I said, I think drinking that has worse effects on your body than COVID does.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get scientists to look into that, as well as like the Long Island pitchers at CJ's, just basically a pitcher full of alcohol that'll just completely wreck you. But all right, the last thing, and this is weird coming from me as the resident nervous Nelly, I might be one of the most anxious people ever when it comes to watching Notre Dame games. But Notre Dame fans freaking out in the first quarter and blowing up on Twitter, that was so damn annoying. (laughs) Like, relax, dude. It's Syracuse. They drove right down the field on the first drive. Yes, it resulted in a field goal. Syracuse on the first drive, they actually moved the ball. But that game was literally never in doubt, and people were freaking out. You know, what is this team? Maybe we were wrong, all this stuff like it's the last game. It's Senior Day. I mentioned uh, in the preview pod that Notre Dame has had a tendency in recent years, with the exception of 2018, to kind of come out a little bit sluggish on Senior Day. Was the game ever in doubt? No. People need to chill. We've mentioned before how Notre Dame fans, although we are part of this uh, cult, they can be extremely annoying. And, yeah, I was, I was quite pissed <laughs> at some of the things
1: I was seeing, at least on Twitter, um, from the Notre Dame fan base. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I've probably been in more fights with Notre Dame fans than opposing fans during the, my lifetime as a Notre Dame fan. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the three touchdowns in 90 seconds, I think, helped remove that pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, Notre Dame just decided, oh, yeah, we're we're way better than this team, Let's <laughs> let's just show it now. And, and then it did. Like, you can't do that against great teams. Obviously, Notre Dame hasn't done that against great teams. Like, this is just what happened. College teams, they do this sometimes. And you know, for people like Notre Dame fans who religiously watch a team every Saturday, year in and year out, you think that they'd start to pick up on this every once in a while, that, hey, sometimes start they don't start great. Whatever. Nobody to think the sky is falling. Clearly, they haven't figured it out and um, probably won't ever figure it out.
1: No, they won't, but what can you do? <sighs>
0: All right.
1: That about wraps things up for the Syracuse game. You got anything else? No. Uh, it's Clemson week, so that's all I got and we're not going to spoil any of that today, but I'm starting to get excited. These, these two weeks are going to last about a year. How
0: many times do you think you'll rewatch the Clemson game from the regular season between now and then to get
1: yourself ready? I don't know. To be honest, I, uh, I kind of have a lot to do the next two weeks (laughs) on a, on a personal career wise. Like, you know, this is like a two weeks to get my life in order a little bit before Christmas, So we'll see, but um, let's say probably four. (laughs) (laughs) Preface that with, like, oh, I've got a lot of things to do.
0: I'm going to watch it four times. All right. All right, that wraps things up for the Syracuse game. Uh, Let's bring on Patrick Engel now to discuss another undefeated regular season for the Irish. All right, it's about time. we got a smart person on this show. We're joined now by Patrick Angle, the Notre Dame beat writer for Blue and Gold Illustrated. Uh, he's just a couple years removed from the prestigious Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern and is now one of the best in the Notre Dame beat. So, Patrick, the first question I have for you really is, what has your first year on the beat been like during what's been the weirdest season in college football history?
2: Well, first, I'm glad that someone thinks I'm smart despite uh, you know covering this only in the setting of you know, a, a freaking pandemic. But anyway, yeah, it's been weird. Uh, kind of thinking where I haven't met in person anybody I cover with the exception of, well, I guess if you consider Blake Fisher someone I cover, which is not technically true because I don't do all the recruiting. But, yeah, it's kind of bizarre where to, you know, Brian Kelly, I'm just some random moron whose voice comes on his Zoom on Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays during game week. But it's it's still been cool. I mean, I've enjoyed writing about this College football season because it's college football, and as I'm sure you guys are fully aware, it's not like Notre Dame hasn't given us anything cool to write about and cool stories and and neat things to follow and what seems like it's uh, Brian Kelly's best team. And I guess I'll say, and one of the questions I get a lot is, what is it like you know, at the stadium, and is the atmosphere weird? And I think in football you don't quite sense that as much in basketball because you're in the press box, you're disconnected. And that's the case, even if you have 80,000 people packed into a stadium and to the students credit, they were enough noisy enough to create an atmosphere like the Clemson game. So you could still kind of hear that a little bit. Maybe this past weekend was the first time, but basketball is where it gets weird and it's like every game feels like an 8am Saturday AAU game where there's just nobody in there. But
1: yeah, weird, but it's still enjoyable. It's college football. I'm just glad we have it. Yeah, absolutely. I know we are as well. Um, I got to ask you, so after you had spent some time preseason preparing to cover this team, what were your expectations for Notre Dame coming into this year? And and how did that stack up with what this team has been able to accomplish to date?
2: Well, I thought they'd be really good. I didn't think they'd be this good. I didn't expect a Clemson win and – I certainly don't take anything away from that win, even though in the summer you're not expecting Trevor Lawrence to get the coronavirus or anything like that. And its I don't think anyone can say Notre Dame didn't earn that and and really kind of show you what it can do. But, yeah, I, I'm not sure I would have seen the defense being really, I think, better than it was last year just considering what they lost. I We weren't sure who the – the running back was gonna be, but you figured that would be a pretty high floor operation, just considering what they had back up front. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what we would get from Ian Book. I mean, I guess it's kind of one of two things you're deciding between: of pretty good quarterback who has some deficiencies and kind of still is feeling some things out sometimes where it just doesn't look quite right in the pocket and what we saw at the end of last year, really at the beginning of his career, where a guy who's kind of operating in control and with precision that you kind of saw on his, how he's played lately. Uh, So I, I don't know. Let's just pretend and go back to the normal schedule for a minute. I would have figured, yeah, they got a pretty good shot at at going 10 and two once again. And I guess here they are in December with 10 wins. Obviously it looks a little different than that, but yeah, I, I would say it's definitely exceeded my expectations just with the complete nature of it where you look around and say, yeah, this team doesn't have an obvious like black hole, huge weakness thing that you stay up at night worrying about is going to cost them in this, in a big game or anything like that.
0: Yeah. The season's been full of surprises. And I think if you ask most fans and people who cover the team, Kyron Williams' breakout season has been uh, the biggest surprise and a big reason why Notre Dame has exceeded preseason expectations. But was there anything else or maybe an individual performance who really took you by surprise as well, other than Kyron?
2: Yeah, the more we look at it, the more I, I think less surprising uh, that Kyron's performance has been, just as we've gotten to learn more about him and how he's wired and, and what he's done. But yeah, I, I certainly didn't think Clarence Lewis would be their starter at, at field corner. And if you want to attribute that to other struggles and just kind of... Up and downs from Tariq Bracy—that's fine. But he's looks the part physically. I mean, we saw him tackle uh, all the time on on Saturday, where it was just yeah, he they've given the cushion to the Syracuse receivers, but bringing him down right away. So I, I certainly didn't think that that would be something that he's going to be in here doing right now. And we heard Brian Kelly basically say it from the start of the season that he's. He's gonna play, and we didn't see that coming either. I can assure you, <laughs> no. And I don't know that I saw Michael Mayer being Michael Mayer, like this guy who's basically an automatic first down when he runs forward. Uh, no one covers him on crossing routes. I mean, you figured, all right, he's gonna play. He's a big recruit, and you just you know, watch him a little bit, and it's like, yeah, this this guy's ready to go. But you figured Tommy Tremble would have a say in that, and obviously he's still been involved, but the command in which Mayer has kind of taken control as the go to receiving tight end in that 11 personnel and just with how non-freshman he looks yeah I'm not sure we saw that
1: yeah absolutely and obviously you just mentioned a a couple young players right there with with Mayer um, as well as Clarence Lewis but is it one of those two or, or is there another young player that you're kind of most excited to watch over the course of the next few seasons is Mayor too easy an answer? Is that a cop out? Are you going to be most NFL ready? I guess
2: so. Yeah, that might be a cop out. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll I'll reach back a little bit more. I'll go with Chris Tyree. I mean, we saw the home run speed on Saturday with the 94 yarder, but I think we've seen in kind of parts throughout the season that he's not just a speed back who you have to get on you know some screen or reverse or something way out in space for him to be effective and maybe he's, there's still some runs where you see he's learning to see things more and, and let things develop. But I think the physicality there, when you mix in the the speed where yeah, he's, he's hit some big runs that have been one cut and go or right in that outside zone and, and stretch plays that they run with Kyron Williams all the time. So I, I think that's been one, I guess a, a little surprising, but too impressive. Just when you think of the total package and tools that, that he has. And, at least for another year, he'll be working in tandem with Kyron Williams, but he's just kind of one of those guys where you look at and it's like, yeah, he's electric and electric is pretty exciting to watch.
0: Yeah. He has been exciting to watch. And that last touchdown really was like a culmination of a lot of his improvement this year. Now this is Notre Dame's third undefeated season under Brian Kelly. And, you know, the first two ended in, in blowout losses in the post season. So I think fans are, a little worried, I guess, about, you know, what's to come. So in your opinion, what is different about this year's team compared to, say, the 2018 group that makes this team more prepared for a run at the national championship?
2: Yeah, I look at two areas there. And the first being, I just think, overall depth, where, I mean, let's go back to that Cotton Bowl game against Clemson a couple years ago. Julian Love is hurt, and it kind of starts to sink from there, where, all right, a drop off to uh, I believe it was Dante Vaughn that uh that yep. came in there as well as he uh tried to do it's it's Julian Love to not Julian Love and, and that's a big deal and, and maybe corner in particular is one of those situations where all right let's say Nick McLeod goes down and then you're putting in a freshman but overall I don't think that you worry about an injury at say most of these given positions, I mean, let's put quarterback aside, but who's not saying that Clemson Clemson isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. We'd we'd all like to be Clemson where you have (laughs) two top five overall recruits on their roster, but uh, yeah, exactly. So let's say for a minute that like Dalen Hayes gets hurt. I think you feel pretty good about throwing Isaiah Foskey in there in an every down type of role. Same with Adele You feel pretty good about Justin and Demi Lola or anyone on the interior where, I mean, Howard cross and Kurt Heinrich have worked in tandem pretty well. I mean, they, they can go five deep combined at the nose tackle positions where you don't really notice a drop off or where you can have any given group of four on the defensive line. And there'll be a series somewhere in a few plays where you just kind of watch and, and someone does something and it's like, Oh, who's that guy? And it just kind of pops out. And it can be, again, any one of those, I guess, when you combine it between ends and tackles, uh, what 10, 11 guys that, that play. So I don't know that 2018 would have been able to say that. I mean, I think, yeah, let's say Drew White gets hurt. I think you feel pretty good about Bill Bauer. Uh, I would have been very concerned, just as I'm sure every Notre Dame fan was when Kyle Hamilton got ejected. But, I mean, at least you have evidence that Houston Griffith came in and wasn't picked on. He did his job. So I think overall depth there and just ability with being able to put guys in as backups and that they're either – Playing well, or at least just doing their job, assignment sound, and not being able to be exploited, I think is a big thing. And then you just look at the the physicality is is the other part. I mean, I don't know how many other Notre Dame offensive lines would be able to manhandle, I'll say, a team like Clemson, like this group did uh, six week or a month ago. Uh, I we saw it in you know, 2012 when. Alabama kind of had their way with them uh, in, in 2018 in, in the Cotton Bowl. You saw a little bit of the same thing. But, yeah, I mean, you just kind of watch that game back and you see this front five and, and you look at like, yeah, you just kind of think they can win the line of scrimmage against most anyone or at least not get completely you know, pushed back for, for four quarters. So I, I think you look there and, and look, we saw the same thing from the defensive line against Clemson Ware they kind of beat up their offensive line a little bit. You just see guys kind of peeling themselves up off the ground as that game went on. I don't know that that was the case in in some of these previous years, even on some of these, these really good teams that had top end talent. And of course, Quentin Nelson, yeah, he wasn't on 2012 or 18. You're not worrying about him being pushed back or anything like that, but the entire operation on the offensive line. And I think just both lines of of scrimmages there and that you feel a little bit more, better just about their ability to punch back and and deliver early haymakers and and keep being able to control that maybe more so than you would have when you look at the whole combined units of some previous teams.
1: So ever since beating Clemson, I I think that Ian book's been rewarded with a, a ton of praise and accolades that he probably deserved before, but now he is finally getting that recognition. And from your perspective, what has impressed you the most about him this season? I think it's the scrambling to throw instead of,
2: all right, out of the pocket, and it's pretty much running, and sometimes out of the pocket too early when there's another read out there to be had. And I know that's something that he uh, was, was mindful of, but at the same time, you, you, when he's scrambling to throw and you kind of think, all right, scramble, and, and he's looking around to see what's still downfield, is where you really see his kind of complete out-of-pocket, improvisation really shine and to me that's his best trait and we've seen that show up in a a lot more consistent and I guess explosive for lack of a better term here level this year where I mean I'll go back to Saturday I thought his best throw and maybe one of his best throws of this season is he's rolling to his left he left the pocket when, when I forget I think it was a some kind of pressure up the middle and he's still looking downfield and he throws across his body and it's a a dart to Bennett Skoranek right between the two ones. And yeah, that, that you just kind of think, and it's like, that's what it's supposed to look like. And I don't know that first half of 2019 or most of 2019 Ian book is still looking to throw at that point when he's well past the numbers and it's probably five or six seconds after the ball is snapped. So to me, that's the most noticeable difference, even from Duke until Syracuse and as you just kind of go through how he's played over the course of the year. And I think that kind of just goes hand in hand with being more comfortable in the pocket. I mean, I'll point to another throw on Saturday where uh, Javon McKinley's third touchdown. It was Syracuse sent six guys and Notre Dame picked it up well, but there's still some, a a little bit of heat there. And he's just standing in there. He doesn't move and delivers a strike to McKinley. So I, when you look at pocket presence and the improvisation that's there when he's looking to throw as he scrambles, I think that's what we've seen the biggest reason for his elevation in the offense's elevation.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because Brian Kelly had an interesting point on his press conference today where he said that Notre Dame is, is starting to incorporate book scrambles into their game plan a little bit. Um, because they don't run a lot of designed runs for him. And he was saying that some plays, they're designed now where he basically has a quick read uh, to scramble if he doesn't like what he sees. So have you seen Tommy Reese do anything differently, maybe just from a schematic standpoint in recent games, that has allowed Ian to excel even more at the scramble than throw that maybe they hadn't done early on in the year?
2: I mean, as far as the real nitty-gritty X's and O's and things, uh, not that I've You're noticed, I'm not smart enough to pick that up. But we aren't either, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I think just in general, uh, it, it's just more of a comfort with what Reeves wants to do. I mean, if you look over the course of the entire season, even back to the opener, uh, he's been really good off play action, whether that's been sitting there in in the pocket and letting that develop, or all right, it, it happens to be something where all right, the play breaks down because of that, and, and he's able to. Uh, scramble and improvise and and buy time there uh and i don't know I mean, maybe there's a few instances where even now if you notice like all right he's leaving and there's someone who looks like they're open i kind of think like all right maybe that's just the thing where he doesn't like it as opposed to when he could he could run uh so i, I don't know if that really uh, answers it all that much but I, I would just point to above anything else just comfort and, and really trusting what he sees or doesn't see and whether that's, all right, yeah, that's not going to be open. I'm just going to go and wait for it. Or yeah, I'm going to stay in here because that's come, that's going to come open. or this guy that I see is open is actually open. And I think Reese just in general has been able to bring that to him at a level that I don't really know that we saw last year. And, and even in a little bit in, in, in 2018, just with chip long's offense.
1: I think a lot of that comfort was due to the strength of the offensive line. And, and up until they lost Jarrett Patterson to his season ending injury, it kind of looked like this offensive line group was clearly the best in the country and, and really might cruise the rest of the way to the Joe Moore award. That's all still in play, but losing Patterson is obviously a, a big blow to the group. How would you assess the play of that group since they lost two starters to injury? I think they've done their
2: job. Uh, I've, went back and watched Zeke, Zeke Corral filling in for Patterson fairly closely against North Carolina. I pro football focus didn't exactly like him. I, I thought he held up. I mean, there wasn't anything where he was just getting completely bowled over, or blowing assignments. They gave him some help with giving him a lot of double team blocks with one of the guards, but he did his job there. Uh, there were a few plays where it's like, oh yeah, he, he could get some push and got to the second level. You like the mobility. And, and obviously we'll see what happens there between him and Josh Lugg. I mean, you've seen the snap issues that came up with both of those. You figure that the more that either one of them works with Book, the less of a frequent thing that'll be. Uh, as far as Dylan Gibbons in right guard, probably not as much of a uh, long-term thing considering Tommy Kramer's going to come back. I thought he held up fine uh, against Syracuse. And, and lug overall, I mean, one of the things you look at just with some of those interior linemen and and guards and tackles uh, in in some of these cases is, all right, how can they, how are they communicating with the guy next to them? Are they able to pick up stunts in time? Are they figuring out, all right, when can one of them leave to get up to a second level blocker or a a defensive player to go block? Uh, Those are the kinds of things that maybe you haven't seen at the level that those initial five guys are playing at, which is what you'd expect for one, those guys all coming back after starting last year and two, just breaking in new starters. So I think you'll start to see that iron itself out a little bit more just as they play more games together. But I don't think you're looking at this as a situation where whoever the new center is between Lug and and Corral is like, Oh, that guy's going to be a massive liability. I I think there's enough just traits there with both of those guys that the line can still function at a high level.
0: Now on the other side of the ball, Notre Dame's defense has played, you know, as well or better than pretty much any other defense in the country. And the phrase, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, is often used to describe this group because really outside of Kyle Hamilton and Jeremiah Wusu-Kormoa, there aren't really any obvious first-round picks in this lineup, at least not at the moment. So what is it about this group as a whole that makes them so effective?
2: You just don't see many busts or missed assignments or blown coverages or something which is what made that one play in the first half I think it was on Saturday so weird where it was a I think a 37 yard gain or running back who just was uncovered out of the backfield and you watch it and it's like this is just so out of character and I'm, I'm not even sure who blew the assignment there because it just looked so off but you, you don't really see that too much and, and then I guess are, a little bit goes back to the a, what I had mentioned earlier when you asked about the differences of 2018 and now just the overall depth of amount of guys that they can trust to go out there and execute and again, do their job is to use a coach phrase. So I, I think just the overall synergy, like you touched on is has been important where it's guys understanding what's going on in front or in back of them, even if it's not their position. And, and you look at that as, as just when you see, all right, everyone in the right, in the right gap or something, or, you know, a, a zone where everyone stays in, in, their, in their specific zone. And one it's look, you have to give Clark Lee credit here too, but it just kind of reflects Lee and the unit as a whole's trust in each other and just understanding of what he wants them to do. I mean, you don't really see a lot of guys out there like thinking too much. Maybe you did it against Florida state and that hasn't been the case since, where it's like, all right, what am I supposed to do? Or they're you know, trying to remember all this long list of call sheets or anything. It just seems like just a pretty loose thing where no one's swimming in the vocabulary, swimming in the assignments, and just the situation where all these guys just understand what they're supposed to do and they're smart enough when it actually unfolds to to see it and do their jobs.
1: So basically, the opposite of a of a Brian Vang order defense. Is just what it seems that. like you're <laughs> describing antithesis of Well, BVG, and if you turned on Bowling Green. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Um, Now, it it wouldn't be a a Notre Dame football podcast episode this year if we didn't have some mention or or discussion of little Clemson. So we do have to ask at least one question about Clemson. How do you anticipate Notre Dame adjusts its game plan from the first time they played Clemson a month ago today um, for the rematch in in Charlotte on December 19th? When you look at the offense in in that game, and we've heard – I think Tony Dungy
2: talked about it in the broadcast, but then even Brian Kelly in the days following it is wanted to try to break some tendencies and that whether that's you know, shot plays out of 12 and 13 personnel where you know, they've lined up and just run the ball at people out of those for a lot of the year or you know, passing on, on first down or other, just other tendencies that they had shown on film up until that point, tried to go away from those a little bit. I don't know that that's going to be as, Much of an advantage for them now that all right, they've played Clemson once. They've got ten games, and maybe they could. That was a thing that was a little more available uh, to them just because Reese was still. I mean, at that point, what it was uh, six games of his his play calling career, and what this offense does, not really being similar to uh, prior ones, or and and with Chip Long. But yeah, I I wouldn't think that they're going to get away from still wanting to run the ball again going back to what i mentioned earlier about they were able to win up front on both lines and i think they'll go into this again feeling like they can do that even with a couple of starters back for Clemson who are important players i mean it just goes back to again being able to kind of wear them down and that's what they've done to most everyone they've played this year i don't think they're going to try to go too far from that And, and the same thing on uh, on defense. It seems unrealistic to think Travis Etienne's going to average a yard and a half a carry again. But I, I would imagine that they'll look at that front seven or line of scrimmage and say, yeah, we can we can win up here. And in Clemson's run blocking has still taken a step back from what it was in the last couple of years. And I don't think you look at some of the games post Notre Dame and say, oh yeah, they've turned over a new leaf or figured something out there or made a personnel change or anything to where all of a sudden they're pummeling guys and ETN is averaging nine yards a carry or something ridiculous like he, he used to be doing uh, up until this year. And it, look, he's still he's still Travis ETN, like an all-American. But I don't think that it will be anything just drastically different. We've heard Brian Kelly say all year, we're going to be who we are. I would be surprised if they do anything other than with, with go with exactly what got them here Even if you look at Clemson and say, yeah, that's going to be hard to do against certain areas with their team.
0: All right. Be sure to check them out at Patrick angle underscore. That's Patrick E N G E L underscore on Twitter. And if you're not subscribed rivals or blue and gold illustrated already do it now so you can keep up with Patrick's work and all the other great content. they churn out all the time. Patrick, we appreciate the time, man. We'll talk again soon. Okay.
1: All right, guys. Appreciate you having me. And that was Patrick angle, blue and gold illustrated. Really great to hear his perspective covering the team in a pandemic year when very few people are at these games. Before we sign off, wanted to make mention of something that is very near and dear to our hearts, as well as many members of the Notre Dame community. Last week, we dedicated our episode to our late friend, Zach Plants. As we mentioned on that episode, Zach was running a Movember campaign at the time to raise money for men's mental health. Wanted to let our listeners know that that campaign has shot up to the number one highest highest raised funds in the world with over $143,000. Just a really unbelievable showing of support from the Notre Dame community. And frankly, I think Notre Dame should light up Grace Hall For Zach Plants. Um, We're going to get that hashtag going. Light up Grace Hall for ZP. And you know what? I think if we have it our way, lighting that up could just be a precursor of January 11th after we beat whoever in Miami, because I think that building might be lit up just all winter.
0: Yeah, it's been pretty incredible just to see the outpouring of support from so many people in and kind of on the fringes of the Notre Dame community. I've seen posts about him from all over. Um, it's been sort of a ray of light and otherwise really dark time for Notre Dame and the family as a whole so yeah it's been awesome to see that just $143,000 man that's that's so much and is emblematic of everything that he was so really cool to see that by the time this is released the fundraiser will be over Um, but something that I'll never
1: forget no me neither that's all we got today And uh, we can't wait to talk to you about Clemson next week.